On this episode, I'm in the room with Burke Parsons discussing how to love theology without hating people. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 34. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itrpodcast, and you can always find additional content on my blog at ryanhughley.com, that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So every week I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. On this episode, I'm in the room with Burke Parsons. He's the co-pastor of St. Andrew's Chapel with R.C. Sproul, an author and the editor of Table Talk magazine. In our conversation, we're discussing what makes theology so divisive, how to hold convictions without alienating others, and how he almost was a founding member of InSync. Get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Burke Parsons. Burke, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. And uh, look, so there's, uh, I got to just, we got to start with this. I was, I had uh, Scotty Smith on last week. And uh, we had a great conversation about prayer, but I told him that we were going to be chatting this week. And he said that I have to talk to you about how you are a backstreet boy. So uh, I'm sure that you're tired of talking about this. That was news to me. I must have missed the memo where that had been the case. So we got to talk about your background because that's just all kinds of fun. So uh, let's start with, we'll get there, but are, so you're in Florida now at St. Andrew's Chapel. And uh, are you originally from, you lived in Florida your whole life or did you relocate there? Uh, it's a good question and a long story, and uh, it's good to be with you too, Ryan. Uh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, I was born in Carmel, California, and okay. uh, moved about about seventeen, eighteen times before I was eighteen. Wow, Dad in the military, From California? No, no, that's another story. But uh, <laughs> um, Dad did uh, a lot of different things. He uh, worked in politics and fundraising politics, and uh, World War II veteran, and um, anyhow, retired young. But we moved from California and a couple of places up there, and then to Arizona, Montana, Ohio, Florida, back to Ohio, um, divorce, father's death, um, and then around uh, Sarasota, Florida. I really kind of consider Sarasota my home. I do consider Florida my home. But man, it's such a long and difficult story, and uh, it's filled, as you can imagine, with. Um, you know, truly a great deal of pain yeah. and, um, and just tough memories. Yeah. Um, and, and thankfully it's all a part of God's story of grace in my life, which actually Scotty Smith was a big part of helping me to see that, um, about, uh, 12 years ago. Okay. So, um, it was significant, but I do consider Florida my home. I've been here, uh, serving Dr. Sproul for, uh, just over 15 years now. Okay. And, uh, and now serving with him here at St. Andrews for about, um, as co-pastor for a few years. I mean, been at St. Andrews for many, many, many years. And, um, it's just been a, an absolute honor to serve under him and, uh, to serve him at, uh, Ligonier Ministries and through Table Talk. So yeah. what I, I was curious thinking about that, like what, what was it like, um, stepping into, uh, I, 
like filling a pulpit alongside of someone like Dr. Sproul, that's, that would, if it were me, maybe you're just have more courage than I do. That would be a fairly intimidating task. So what was that like initially stepping into, um, a shadow uh, of that size, if you know what I mean? Absolutely. I know what you mean. And, uh, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, like we were talking about earlier, you know, I, I started preaching in his stead when he was sick or away at a conference or on vacation, I think I was about 27. I, I don't recall. Uh, the difficulty was, is that at that time, you know, the church was very, very small, but, uh, you know, I had Bruce Waltke and Roger Nicole in the congregation. Okay. So I was beginning to learn to preach with, you know, various reformed theological seminary professors in the congregation. So as you can imagine, that was what was probably the most daunting. Yeah. Leading the service, leading the pastoral prayer, and then preaching. Uh, and then over the years, you know, preaching two services, and then uh, we were able to start an evening worship service, which we still have to this day, and then preaching evening. And, you know, having different professors come in. So standing in R.C.'s shadow has always been, um, always and still remains to be, as you can imagine, um, a nerve-wracking thing. I mean, yeah. I'm not courageous. I have really no self-confidence. And I mean, that's not just false modesty. Um, to this day, as I was preaching all three services on Sunday and Dr. Sproul was in the congregation for one of those services, yeah. it still, you know, made me a little bit nervous. But RC said once to me years ago, probably, oh, probably 10, 12 years ago, uh, when I was talking about preaching in his pulpit, he stopped me and he said, Burke, this isn't my pulpit and it's not your pulpit. This is God's pulpit. It's good. And, and, you know, and that, and that wasn't just a throwaway statement, as you know. That was a significant statement. Yeah. And, you know, people don't know R.C. very well. Um, he really has, um, he's really, really, truly one of the most humble men I know. Okay. Uh, not about himself and his own spotlight. So he doesn't see it as, you know, his shadow or his pulpit. He sees this as Christ's pulpit. He sees it as the place that we both get to serve him from uh, with the gifts of preaching. So it's, yeah. it's just a blessing, as you can imagine. What have been some of the key, you've been with him for a long time, what have been some of the key ways in which he's influenced your life and ministry? Well, he has influenced my life and ministry in, in every way, in one sense, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, but in God's providence, you know, he brought many mentors into my life uh, when I was really quite young. Um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home like you, had just a smattering of kind of different places and different churches at different times. Um, I mean, you name it, I, I've been to that church yeah. uh, growing up. And you know, again, not being raised in a Christian home, I remember my first Bible lesson, uh, I was probably uh, I was probably nine years old, and it was a Bible lesson going from the Gospels uh, where Jesus cleared out the temple on one of the two occasions, likely. And, and I was told, well, you know, even Jesus got angry, even Jesus messed up. And so he understands when we mess up, and when we sin, and that was my first Bible lesson. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't brought up in the church and, and it was just a smattering of different places, depending on where we went and where my father worked, that sort of thing. But I be, as, as I became a Christian at about 15, God brought many godly men into my life, Baptist men, uh, Southern Baptist men, independent fundamentalist Baptist men, um, uh, even, even some quasi charismatic men and some Mennonite men. Uh, that God had just brought into my life, and, and even some women later on as well. Um, and so he just brought a whole group of people, and still to this day, 
I have many men that I consider mentors, even Dr. Ferguson, yeah. uh, Sinclair Ferguson, whom I consider a mentor and a friend. So, but Dr. Sproul's touched every aspect of my life in ministry, truly. Yeah. Uh, everything I think, everything I do, everything I believe. Um, and, you know, over the years, I'll just say this lastly, Ryan. Over the years, um, I've not always agreed with Dr. Sproul on everything. Even yesterday, we were at lunch together. We have lunch weekly, and we were talking about uh, a certain doctrinal issue, and we are talking about our differences and nuances in describing it. But, but even yesterday, sitting with him, talking with him on a subject that you know, I have some differences with, or just a minor tertiary matter um, where many Reformed men disagree, I, I found myself agreeing with him even more than I had before we sat down. And in truth, the things that I thought I disagreed with him on years and years ago, I've actually come to say, you know, he really, he really knows this well. Yeah. He really has thought through this well, and he's thought about it for decades. And he's, he doesn't just, he's not one of these guys who just says, well, this is my view, that's it, and I'm moving on. Right. He continues to grapple with it and wrestle with these subjects biblically, confessionally, as, as he, really, he really is my favorite theologian, yeah. without question. So. I, think, I think that the, the, your point about having a wide variety of people around you, I think that that's a really overlooked um, <clears throat> necessity in, especially in young Christian lives. I, I mean, I have a, a church filled with um, primarily young people, 18 to 34 is kind of our main demographic. And there's, I, every week I get a question from somebody about, you know, I need a mentor. And we kind of have this Paul mindset where there's one person out there who should be able to mentor every facet of my life. I've personally never experienced that. It puts far too much pressure on any one person and just leads to disappointment. I think there's so much more wisdom in seeking out, you know, identifying even just in your local church, uh, a man or a woman that is, you know, has something that you admire and to be able to pursue that particular thing as opposed to there's one person who's supposed to be able to mentor me in all, don't you think? Like that's just a lot of pressure to put on one person. I completely agree, Ryan. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and, and also I think it's unrealistic um, totally. and also not the way God designed it, really. I mean, we might have one chief mentor or a few chief mentors in life. But uh, in one sense, our fathers are mentors. In one sense, even our friends are mentors. Sure. Um, you know, my, my colleague, uh, Chris Larson, who's president of Ligonier Ministries, who's my boss, and every time we see each other, I say, hey, boss, and he says, hey, pastor. Yeah. Um, he's been a dear friend of mine for, for more than a decade now. He's a mentor. I mean, yeah. I, I have laymen in the church that I hunt with and fish with regularly, and they're mentors. They're men that have gone before me in their 60s and 70s uh, that I love and I adore, and I learn from them. So I think you're exactly right. And, and I think it's more than just finding a few and identifying a few, but in one sense, learning from all those older, wiser, experienced uh, saints that have gone before us that we can learn from and, and, and just listen to and just sit with and, and, and hear their lives and their stories of grace and how God has worked in their lives. It's, it's one of those beautiful things that we can possibly experience is, is doing just that. So I'm with you. I agree with you. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about <clears throat> your conversation with Dr. Sproul and disagreeing about an issue even yesterday at lunch. Cause I do want to focus in a little bit and talk about <clears throat> the divisive nature of, of, uh, of theology, not, not necessarily that theology in and of itself is inherently uh, divisive, but uh, it definitely causes division amongst brothers and sisters who you know, claim the name of Christ. And so um, you're someone that I feel like from a distance, I've ob observed that um, you are a very theologically minded man. You work for um, 
one of the most significant theologians uh, of the last few decades, at least in our country. And, uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm wondering about what is it do you think that makes theology so divisive? And uh, is it is it inherently divisive? Why why is it that it, it separates denominations? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? So we can kind of jump in anywhere. But I, I just wonder what your thoughts are about what is it exactly that makes theology divisive for so many of us? It's a great question, Ryan, and uh, and as you know, a significant one. Um, as you know, uh, I'm sure um, I am uh, a Presbyterian minister. Um, haven't always been. I started in the Southern Baptist Convention and have a great love and respect still uh, for my brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, great esteem for them. Um, but, you know, I am a thoroughgoing uh, Reformed pastor. Uh, I adhere to the Westminster Standards uh, uh, heartily and, um, and really do believe they summarize the Bible's teaching best. Um, and I die for that. Okay. Uh, and so, you know that, and, um, you know, through table talk and the work there and, um, that I've been doing now for, you know, a long time, we, we work very hard to make sure that we are constantly, um, helping people understand the scriptures, understand the theology of the scriptures and to do it in a way that is gracious and loving, thoughtful, careful, um, for our readers. You understand all that. Um, yeah. And, and, and I just want to say at the outset on that question that whether or not theology is inherently divisive, I would say in one sense, no, it's not. Um, in another sense, does theology or doctrine divide? Yes, yeah. but not for the reasons I think sometimes we think it does. Okay. Um, theology is not inherently divisive in, in my opinion, because um, if, if our theology, as Aquinas said, comes from God, teaches us about God and leads us back to God. Uh, well, the theology that comes from God is one. It doesn't change. Truth doesn't change. Um, and the theology will always be the right theology, even in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, theology is not going to change and we won't be divided because we'll be without sin, of course. Sure. And in God's providence, we're called to work together to know the scriptures and understand the scriptures and the doctrine of the scriptures, apply that doctrine to all of life and to work together as one body, not just spiritually, but also physically to strive to maintain eagerly the unity of the body of Christ. So you get all that, you understand all that as a pastor. That's why we're doing this together today. Sure. Um, but does doctrine divide because of our sin? Yes. What does that look like? And that's, that's obviously the more significant question. I address, I address some of these things in a little book I wrote uh, called Why Do We Have Creeds for yep. PNR and one of their basics of the Reformed Faith series. Um, and, and I try to get to the heart of this of why we divide, why we have different confessions, why we look at things differently. Um, and in, to a great, greater or lesser degree, of course, we don't fully know why we differ, why we disagree. The problem, problem I find, Ryan, um, is that what's fascinating to me is that where we so often make enemies, where we so often want to divide from one another, uh, are, not on the, are, are not on the primary matters of the faith. They typically tend to be on secondary, if not tertiary matters of the faith. And it's not to say that those secondary and tertiary matters aren't important. It's not to say that we wouldn't die for those issues. 
Those are the things about which men will fight, Machen said. Yeah. But, but why is it that we will so easily and so quickly uh, make an enemy of a brother on a secondary and tertiary issue and almost make it seem as if they're idiots for not believing what we believe, even though many of us took many, many years to come to understand and grasp a particular doctrine. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's for a number of reasons. And um, I, I, think, I think fundamentally that when we study, and I want to be very careful about this answer because it's a little bit complex, but I know you'll, and, and I hope your uh, listeners will, will grasp what I'm trying to say. Um, so give me grace here. Sure, of course. <laughs> but I think, I think that some of the reason that we do that Let's take Reformed theology, for example. Let's, let's deal with the doctrines of grace. Yep. Okay. So we, we spend years studying the scriptures, or not. Or maybe we come to the scripture at one point, and we begin to delve into the doctrines of grace. So the sovereignty of God as it pertains to salvation, right? Yep. And, and we begin to delve into these things and dig into these things deeply. We begin to love the scriptures in ways we didn't before, perhaps. We begin to love the doctrine of scripture more than we ever have. We begin to see God in a holy light as a big God who's sovereign over all and truly God, and that we are not sovereign and uh, we're not in control, but he is. And it begins to revolutionize and change our way of thinking. And we begin to see how the sovereignty of God and who God is and, and our doctrine of salvation permeate everything we believe, right? Yep. And so when that happens to us, we begin to, to find such joy and we begin to find such peace, really, and comfort in these doctrines that we have a, almost a, an eager angst for everyone else to yeah. get it and to understand it. And so what happens is in our, in our eagerness and sometimes in our lack of patience, of course, we will go to people and we'll say, well, you know, why don't you understand this? Why don't you see this? Um, and maybe they haven't studied the scriptures like we have, or maybe they haven't looked into these things in the depths that we have, or maybe they haven't had the same teachers or resources that we've had. And so people can sometimes get angry and impatient and upset, and then they begin to battle and to, uh, and to castigate each other and, and really to separate themselves simply because the other brother or sister hasn't had the time um, for whatever reason, we're not making excuses here for not studying theology, but for whatever reason, they've not devoted the time, they've not had the time, they've not had the direction, they've not had the discipleship to really look into these things and, and delve into the depths of the theology of Scripture. And, and so what happens is before they even have a chance to do that, so many people in the church will just hold up their arms to them and, and hold them off at arm's length as if, as if they'll never come to the knowledge of the truth on, on these matters. Yeah, I know uh, for so me, I, I w one of the things for me was I was, I was un, when I started to come and actually Dr. Sproul's book chosen by God was a huge turning point for me in this whole issue. And I'll tell you a little bit about kind of my journey to reformed theology, but I, I think I was unnecessarily zealous initially because I was, I had a bit of frustration about the fact that I felt like, how come nobody told me about this? until, you know, I was 25. Cause that was right. really, it was really right. around 25. And so I think that I know there's a number of things I, so <clears throat> first of all, cause there's 
people are all over the map that are listening right now. So I want to make sure that we don't lose them in the, in the midst of terminology. So on a scale of, uh, I've joked about this before, but on a scale of one to Calvin, you're like, you're pretty reformed. You're like an 11 or a 12. And uh, like, even Calvin's like, you should calm down a little bit, man. Like you're like super Calvinist and in the best way possible. But um, how would you describe reformed th- theology to someone that has not been exposed to it? Well, um, I appreciate that question, Ryan. Um, over the years, what I've done, um, you know, because I wasn't Reformed and I didn't adhere to the doctrines of grace or to Calvinism. And I, I yeah. really, as you know, probably don't call it Calvinism, right. uh, mainly because I think Calvin would really hate that. Yeah. Um, naming the doctrines of Scripture after him yeah. as if he invented them, of course. Uh, he didn't. Right. Um, but the doctrines of grace, I hated them um, for, for really quite some time. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, I, I thought they were awful. And I didn't understand them um, as they were explained to me by, by a few fine and godly men um, who didn't agree with them. I thought, boy, this is just, this is awful theology. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know the scriptures that well. Um, this is, you know, this is going back over 20 years now um, when really it wasn't real common or popular to be reformed. Sure. Um, and so I was in the majority of really opposing reformed theology. And so what happened is I, as I began to study the scriptures uh, in depth myself. Um, and, and I, I even had a notebook, a uh, journal where I recorded passages of scripture that seemed to teach one thing, uh, and then passages of scripture that seemed to teach another thing. So it was like the, the, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God in different columns throughout this journal. Yeah. And, and so over time, over about the course of about two, two and a half years, many discussions, many deliberations, many many sleepless nights, um, very difficult times, even, even coming to the point, Ryan, in a, in the middle of a field one night, uh, I was on staff at, at, at this Baptist church, a good church. Um, I, I came to a point even questioning the authority of scripture saying, how can these things be true? I mean, even crying out to God, yeah. uh, how can these things be the case? I, I came to a point saying, I either have to reject scripture or believe these things. And I didn't quite like it because it wasn't fitting in well with my idea of who God is, his attributes and his character and a God of love. And so, you know, as I began to wrestle through it, and I really did hate it. Um, what always bothered me, even after coming to Reformed theology and coming to see these things, at least soteriologically, uh, in the doctrines of salvation, as I, as I came to grasp these things, um, I really felt for those, and still do to this very day, I still, I felt for those who didn't get it and didn't understand it and didn't like it. I understand exactly where they're coming from. Oh yeah. And our church is filled with people at St. Andrew's Chapel who are new Christians and just coming to grips with the theology of scripture. There are people here from every different walk of life saying, I don't understand these things. I don't get them. Um, and it's our job to shepherd them, to teach them the scriptures, to help them see this and love it in, 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 the, in the big picture of God's redemptive story. Yeah. Um, and so getting, getting back to the question that you asked me, um, I first start by telling them to read a few chapters of scripture. I actually, I actually don't even really begin to describe it to people, if I can help it, if there's the time in our relationship and discipleship. I really want them to read several chapters of scripture numerous times and study them, not just, not just kind of read over them cursory fashion, but to study them. And then for us to come back together 
and to talk about what is being said in those passages. Because I want their, I want their theology to spring forth from the fountain of Scripture, not from my own explanation of it. Sure. Y- you understand, of course. Yeah. And so after we do this, you know, for, for really, I hope, several weeks, if not a few months, it's only then when I begin to give them sort of the theological categories if they don't already know about them. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In the Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates, but here's what's great for In the Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help. And now back to the conversation. One of the things I wanted to say was, I think, you know, your, your experience was a little bit different than mine and that you had what you described as good godly men that started to talk to you about this. And for me, I think that I was less put off by, I definitely struggled with, you know, the kind of most common thing of if, if God chooses who will be saved and who like, why doesn't God choose everyone? And you know, that just seems mean to people. I totally, I, man, I was, I was all over that. My bigger problem, if I'm honest, was that I really did not care for the tone with which uh, reformed people spoke about their reformed theology. I was very put off by that. And, and I think that that was a problem then. I think it can still be a problem now. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I wonder what you think about why is there so much smug arrogance? And, and I, I think that's true of, you know, people that hold to deep theological convictions. It can happen all over the map. I want to be fair with that, but I also want to I want to be more critical of the tribe I'm a part of. And so why do you think there is so much smug arrogance that can pervade, uh, especially a theological category that is largely based on the total depravity uh, of, of humanity and that we don't bring anything to the table. So can you just talk a little bit to why, you know, a, a, that type of tone might be so common to, to reform theology or do you not think that it is? Well, that's a good question. I've considered that as you have, I know, Ryan, over the years, and, um, and why that is the case, or why, why isn't it the case? And um, you know, I will, I will tell you that the more I've spoken with um, men and women who are, are still in the theological camp that is, let's just say, non-Calvinistic, whether they're semi-Pelagian or Arminian, whatever they might be, uh-huh. um, I, I will say I have found that. It's a human condition, as we know, but it's that it really is true of of almost every camp. Okay, um, and that's I, that, I almost want to pick on our own camp, and I, I've probably done that a good bit over the years. 
But I also want to say that the more I've spoken with over the years, um, I have found that there does tend to be a smugness um, and, a, and a, almost a, a proud, pompous arrogance about our beliefs as long as we or as long as the person is um, ardent in them, as long as that person has studied them. So basically what I'm trying to say is those who have studied their theology, whether they be a Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or Episcopalian, I found that those who have studied their doctrine, they tend to be ardent in what could sometimes be at certain times um, it could seem to be more pompous and arrogant and smug, like you say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know people that uh, would, would have differences with us on, um, you know, the sacraments or the Lord's Supper and, and, or baptism. And, and they seem to be actually just as smug um, as those in my own camp in, in disagreeing with us yeah. and, and in their assertiveness. In it. Now, now, turning the guns back on us, right, turning the fingers back on us in our camp, if you will, uh, why is there that smugness? Why is there that arrogance? Um, well, let me first say, I hate it. Yeah. And I, uh, I see it like you do, and it saddens me. It, it, it you know, probably used to anger me when I was a little younger. It, I just, it just saddens me now. Yeah, I would agree because, with that. I feel like that's happened to me too. I've moved more from frustration and, and anger uh, to, it, like, it's just sad. <laughs> And heartbreaking. It yeah, it is. Because I want to say, listen, listen, friends, brothers and sisters, um, these doctrines should, these doctrines ought to make us filled with joy. These doctrines ought to make us filled with grace. These doctrines ought to make us filled with love. Now, one thing, you know, RC and I have talked a lot about over the years, and it really does affect the sort of the ethos of our church, um, is that people feel free here. And, and one of the things we've talked about, and why is that? Why do people come to our church and say, I feel free? Now, if, if anyone knows anything about our church and our service, you know, we actually have a pretty high liturgy. Yeah. Um, you know, we wear robes and um, there's a, you know, procession and a recession. And uh, it's a pretty uh, standard service. But people have always said, you know, while St. Andrews has, is a lot, has a lot of formal worship, it's a very friendly place. And people will come from Baptist churches and other Presbyterian churches and uh, they say, we feel free here. And, and we feel like there's just grace here. Um, and and we, love, we love being able to come to our pastors and talk with them about our issues and our sins. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you know, the pastors ought to be the first place that we come to, not the last place. That's right. And, and confessing our sins. So, you know, that's really, that really should be our ethos. That should be our life and breath. What do you think then has led to that for you guys? Well, I think, I think it really is. Um, it's not just understanding and grasping, of course, Reformed theology, but it's, but it's grasping what's behind Reformed theology. And that's the doctrine of, of God's grace uh, upon his people. And grace, of course, is unmerited. It's undeserved. And that humbles us. If it doesn't humble us, I, I really have to ask, do you really get it? Right. Do you, not only not only do you really get reformed theology, but do you really get the gospel? Do you really understand Jesus's life and ministry? Do you really understand that you are a poor, unworthy sinner? Do you really understand that you don't you don't you didn't come to even understand these doctrines themselves by your own diligence and your own strength? 
God in his grace, if you believe in the sovereignty of God at all, you believe that he's the one who brought you to these things, even understanding the doctrines themselves ought to make you fall down on your knees and say, thanks be to God for helping me understand these things and understand your word and the depths that I do for your glory, not my own. Yeah. You know, it, it, it ought to make us more give glory to God and more humble ourselves uh, and more get on our knees and say, Lord, forgive me for my arrogance. Forgive me for my smugness. Forgive me for my pride. Yeah. So if, if understanding the gospel and understanding grace is sort of the foundation, what would be some other practical things that you would think of that would help us better hold our convictions without alienating or even demonizing people that we differ with? That's a great question. And I, I just want to say, Ryan, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you and I are both pastors and preachers and, um, <laughs> I appreciate you asking me these questions because I could just as easily be asking these questions of you and uh, getting your answers. So I appreciate the conversational nature. Yeah, of course. Of, uh, it's very, it's, it's just wonderful. Um, I think, I think, and this is going to sound like a very reformed answer, Yeah. but I, I really think that we need to know our confessions and our creeds better. Okay. You see, people don't realize it, but there is actually very, very little difference between our creeds and confessions. The historic creeds of the church from the ecumenical councils of the early church and the historic reformed confessions of uh, really the 17th century and even the 16th century to some degree, it's amazing how much they have in common. And if, if, we, if we understood that about each other and we understood that at the end of the day, so a difference on paedo-baptism, though I believe it is a significant difference and I believe it's a significantly different way of looking at the church, a significantly different way of looking um, at, at the covenant community and how God works with people. At the same time, I also understand that our difference is not fundamentally, listen carefully, not fundamentally a difference in theology, but a difference in hermeneutic. Okay. That our difference on that issue, yes, theology informs our hermeneutic and hermeneutics informs our theology. But fundamentally, we are coming to certain passages of Scripture. Those, our interpretation, our hermeneutics, our method of interpretation that we bring to those passages informs our theology, gives us a theology that we then bring back to bear on the rest of Scripture. And so we read all the Scripture in light of the theology based on the hermeneutics of a few passages, if you will. But when we're not dealing with heresy, when we're not dealing with something that will either damn or save one's soul. We ought to have such earnestness and a, and a life and heart of prayer for unity in the body that we are not compromising the truth, but rather, rather we are coming together because of the truth, even amidst certain secondary and tertiary differences to celebrate the common truths that we adhere to as we together, as we together do exactly what Jude tells us to do in contending earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. And so there can be a unity among brothers like you and I have today, like we have even at Ligonier, even among authors of Table Talk, even among uh, the teaching fellows at Ligonier Ministries. There is a robust and beautiful unity that exists among them because we care And we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the scriptures and we love the theology of the scriptures. And where we differ, we differ. And sometimes those differences are significant. But if those differences 
make us truly divided before the face of Christ, then the truth of the matter is our doctrine is not biblical. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important in our own minds to have have clear categories for really understanding what is what is primary, what is fundamental, and what is a secondary issue. And I think just making a conscious decision that it doesn't mean that our secondary issues, as you've said, are not important, are not critical. You've even said that you wouldn't, you know, it's not even that you wouldn't necessarily die for them, but it just means that I don't think we should divide over them. And uh, so, I, I mean, that's one thing for me is really trying to keep the main thing the main things, the main thing, as you think about this, like who are some people that you see doing this well, that you really look up to, that you admire? Like I, I asked you to come on because I think you do this well, but who's who are some other men or women maybe in your life or that you know of that you really feel like set a good example in, in how to steward deep conviction, but to do so with great humility? Well, that's a good question. Great question, Ryan. I, I would say... Um, Two of the men I've already mentioned, both Sinclair Ferguson, um, Dr. Sproul, um, because they, they, they hold a line, and they're not willing to cross that line. Um, those, of a, those who know my ministry at all, or the ministry of Dr. Sproul at all, know that we are not going to compromise with Rome. Under no circumstances am I going to compromise the gospel Am I going to compromise the doctrine of justification by faith alone with Rome? Yeah. And uh, that's a hard thing for some people, but yeah. we're going to draw the line there. And so there are many who uh, sadly have done so, and many who sadly uh, want to kind of wash that line away between Protestantism and Catholicism. And I'm not willing to do that, and I'll go to my grave by God's grace, unwilling to erase that line. And so I have to look at it through maybe a slightly different lens than a lot of people, because I'm looking for men who are going to stand for truth and who are going to work towards unity, yet are also not going to compromise the faith and compromise the gospel. And I believe that's what unity with Rome does. And so, um, you know, just put my cards on the table, Ryan. Um, but, uh, you know, men, men like uh, Mike Horton, uh, men like even Alistair Begg, um, I think, I think work very hard at this. I, um, there are so many men that I respect and look up to and read who I think have done good work, yet sadly have compromised either doctrinally um, or, or ecclesiastically, and thus doctrinally, of course, because it is a doctrine and all things revolve around the doctrine of Scripture. But, um, but these are just a few men. I could, I could mention many, many more, of course. But even, even you know, I have to say, even some of the guys in Acts 29, yeah. I've been really blessed to see them stand firm and stand strong for the faith once delivered to the saints and maintain unity, yet at the same time not compromise the doctrine of Scripture. Yeah. And uh, so I've been blessed to see that as well. Good. Well, thanks for your example in that, because I really do appreciate that. When I had mentioned online, one of the things I always do before I'm going to have a conversation with someone is I put out online who I'm going to be talking to and ask for questions. And I had multiple people respond and say, that you are like their favorite person to follow on Twitter. And uh, I think that, you know, one of the reasons for that is that <clears throat> you are um, just very kind and gracious and humble in the way that you you carry these things. But I did have a couple questions for you from online, sure, if that's sure. okay. Absolutely. So I'm going to give the first one to, to Scotty Smith because he had a question for you. And he did want to know, if you had joined the Backstreet Boys, would you have sung tenor or baritone? 
<laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, he was he very was, dogmatic about us talking about yeah, this. He cracks me up. He's so funny. Um, <laughs> so can you just tell, can you, can you tell him just like real quick cliff notes, how in the world did that, did that exist? And how did you, how did you get from there to where you are now? Oh my goodness. Well, it's such a big question. Um, you know, I did this interview with Challies, Tim Challies is a friend of mine. Uh-huh. Um, another man who I think it works towards unity yeah. and doesn't compromise the faith, uh, dear brother in the Lord. Um, but, uh, I did this long interview with him because he said, take all the time you want. So I did. And, yeah. uh, but I, I actually was with the Backstreet Boys, so you need to correct Scotty. Okay. And you need, to, you need to write him and say, well, actually, Burke was one of the first Backstreet Boys. Okay, I got and it. And I sang baritone. All right. And, um, and, if, and uh, it was the group that I was going to join, which would have been in sync when they asked me to do that. And I said, no, that would have been baritone, okay. of course, as well. But anyway, um, that's a big story. And essentially... Um, and essentially, brother, I mean, gosh, it was so long ago, but... Um, my mom wanted me to be in the entertainment world. Um, okay. Her father was in the entertainment world, a big band leader in the 1930s and 40s in Chicago, okay. uh, the Jimmy Featherstone Orchestra. And, um, and so she kind of grew up in the entertainment world. And, um, and we were at a point after divorce, and um, as my younger sister had and still has a very rare case of anemia, um, and, and family now at this point after the divorce in need of money, uh, she thought, you know, maybe I could get my son into uh, the entertainment industry. Interesting. And uh, so it really is quite a long and, and drawn out story um, as to why and how and so forth. Okay. But the difficulty for me is that year, uh, really the year she began to get me into the entertainment world, I'd become a Christian. Okay. And I immediately felt it at, at that age. I was about 15. At that age, I really did feel a, a strong call to ministry. Okay. Um, you know, and, and it wasn't quite sure. I knew it'd be serving people and loving people and caring for people. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so she thought entertainment world and, and quite frankly, many of the Christians that I knew at that time, Ryan, they said to me, this would be a great venue that God could use you in to use your voice for, you know, for Christ. Yeah. And, um, boy, that sounded really, really good. I could make a ton of money and be really famous, at least for, for a time, yeah. uh, and, um, and, and make a lot of money. Here's the issue, is that um, I really, really didn't think I could, and I hate to be crass here, but I really didn't see how I could shake my body in front of a little, little teeny bopper teenage girls and then preach the gospel of Christ to them, which, which we dare not forget is the good news about how Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin and by the Spirit's work in our lives centered on Christ and the fueling grace of God in our hearts fuels us towards holiness and obedience and delighting in pleasing God in all of life and our progressive sanctification. So how could I do that? It was a Mennonite man, and there's so much more I could say, but there was a Mennonite man um, and I'm not Mennonite. Uh, love the Mennonites. I'm grateful for the Mennonites. My stepfather is Mennonite. Um, but it was a Mennonite man, said Burke. And he saw, he saw gifts in me for ministry before I did, he, even in eighth, seventh and eighth grade. And a fine and godly man, he said, Burke, you can't serve God and money. Yeah. And God doesn't need you to popularize him through the world's methods and techniques. Now, again, that's a separatist Mennonite position, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. Yeah. But he was... 
he was right. Now, that's not to say that someone can't be a Christian and be involved sure. in, in the secular world or even in the entertainment world. We know of them. Yeah. That's not the point. The point was is that I couldn't go into it thinking that I could both preach the gospel as a minister and at the same time try to make money from the world by serving the world, if you will, in that yeah. way. Got it. Thanks for, and I'll, I'll point people to that article with Chally's as well, but I appreciate you talking about that a little bit because it's, it is definitely an interesting part of your story. At Justin Dean asked online, outside of scripture, what's one book that you've read more than others and why? That's a tough question. That is a tough question there because there are so many. Um, I think Calvin's golden booklet on the true Christian life okay. is one I would like to very highly commend. I'm actually in the middle of translate it right now from the Latin with a colleague of mine, Aaron Denlinger, who's a Latin scholar. And uh, we've been working on this for about a year now. Um, it, it, it comprises uh, Calvin's, a portion of Calvin's Institutes from uh, book three, chapters six through 10. It's been published and translated and printed uh, over the years in different ways. It was actually one of the three that Calvin wanted printed uh, separately from the Institutes. But I think it's a helpful summary of the Christian life. Okay. Um, and so we're translating that right now, hope to put something out in a couple of years. Uh, but I think it'll be the best translation available for people. That's one. Um, I also find myself returning regularly to Owen's works, John Owen's works, really my favorite theologian. Yeah. Um, except RC, of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, um, but Owen, uh, in, in, in any of his works, the glory of Christ, uh, the mortification of sin. Yeah, um, you know, people hear these things, they think, oh, those are old, they're dusty, we don't need to look to those. But really what they're doing is giving us Christ, showing us the significance of the, of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how God is conforming us to the image of Christ, how he's helping us to grow uh, more in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so they're just constant uh, and helpful reminders uh, to me. So Good answers. Uh, a friend on Facebook, this will be the last question, Joe Best, he asked, how do we, and I think this is a great question for you, how do we, and how do, I'd love to hear how you keep theology from being merely intellectual and and have it work itself out practically in your life? Because don't you think that one, one of the things that, that makes people hold their theology with arrogance might be that it hasn't worked itself out practically in their lives? So I feel like that's a pretty, back to the overarching topic we've been on, that's a pretty important question. So for you, what does that look like? You got to stay on your knees, my friend. Cool. Uh, to, your, to your friend who asked that question. Um, and I, I could say simply prayer, um, and that would be accurate. But I think too often when we hear the word prayer, um, for many people, they think talking to God, and I, I want people to hear on your knees, uh, and whether, because I want them to hear communion with God and fellowship with God. Yeah. I, I want them to hear that um, the life of the Christian is a life of communion with God. It's, it's the life of communion with our Creator. It's a life of fellowship with God. That's one of the main themes of First John fellowship with God, and that leads to a right fellowship with one another. Um, and it leads to walking in the light as he is in the light. And so you can't, you can't be proud when, when you're kneeling at the foot of the cross, when you're looking upon a crucified Savior. You can't, you can't walk arrogantly and humbly in, uh, when, you're, when you're fixing your eyes on Christ, who really is the author and perfecter of our faith, not we ourselves. You, you, can't, you can't be a divisive jerk 
and make everyone else to be like idiots who doesn't understand um, and is not as smart as you, not as cool as you, um, when when you're walking with Christ and fellowship with Christ and getting on your knees before Christ, that that will organically, naturally, inevitably make all of doctrine naturally apply to life. You can't, you can't, you really can't stop doctrine from having its effect in all of life. If you can, your doctrine's not biblical because doctrine by its very nature permeates into all of life. It affects all of life. Um, we can't help it. And, and, and really the way that is sustained and fostered and preserved and the way that grows and permeates in all of life, really to a point where our inhalings become prayers and, and asking for forgiveness and saying, God, help me. And our exhalings become words of praise and God, thank you. And I love you, Lord, all throughout the day. Uh, it becomes a life of communion, a life of fellowship with God. And, and that's, that is, that is doctrine applied in all of life, right? Yep. yep. Well said. I think that's a great period uh, at the end of our conversation. So, Burke, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to do this, but also for your example in uh, these very things that we're talking about, man. So thanks very much. Thanks, Ryan. It's been a pleasure to be with you, brother. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode, but don't forget there's lots of ways that you can connect with me. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley. You can stay up to date on upcoming episodes by liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ITR podcast. And you can always find more content and show notes on my blog at ryanhugley.com. We'll be back next week with episode number 35 and my conversation with Sherry Lowe about her book, Slaying the Debt Dragon. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening. <laughs>